I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, here's a quiz. In which U.S. state do you think people spend the most amount of money on first dates? Here's a clue. It is not Massachusetts. It's not New York, either. Are you ready for the answer? It's actually North Dakota. People in North Dakota apparently spend $84 on average on first dates. That's according to a 2016 Match.com survey. Maybe that means that in North Dakota, a first date is like a real dinner. Maybe even an appetizer along with it. But in New York, a date is like the quickest drink ever. No matter what you do on dates, I do know that the cost of it can add up very quickly. Finding love is a worthy goal, but it doesn't always come cheap. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. On today's episode, I want to talk about something that doesn't get talked about enough, and that is the cost of meeting someone. Not the emotional cost, but the actual cost, the money part. We've been talking all this season about how meeting someone takes work and time and commitment, but it can also take money and sometimes a lot of it. But what exactly do we spend it on? And ultimately, what does it get us? It's really hard to date for free, even if you're using a free app. It's why I get letters from unemployed and underemployed people asking if they're even able to date at all. To understand better what people spend to find love, like what's normal if there is such a thing, I thought it would be good to talk to Lindsay Stanberry. Lindsay is director of work and money at Refinery29. She oversees Refinery29's Money Diaries franchise. It's a very popular daily financial column, book, and podcast. Basically, young women share their experiences with money, relationships, life, and careers— I find it addictive to read, and I know I'm not alone. I asked Lindsay how many people open up on Money Diaries about what they actually spend on dating. We have this offshoot series of Money Diaries called Keep the Receipts, where we actually were having men and women tell us how much they spent specifically on dating over, you know, a 30-day period. And we had one guy on there who spent over $700 on 14 dates in 30 days. So Holy it, shit. Yeah, I know. A lot of money. But, you know, then you look at the women and it was significantly less. It was like $300 over 30 days. And she was including things like she bought two new dresses and she kind of considered that part of the dating budget. Well, that's interesting, too, right? It's not just about who pays the bill, right? It's also about 
eyeliner or, or, or transportation? Well, I think transportation is a huge part of it. I think you see these women, you, you know, oftentimes the guy will pick up the tab in, in straight relationships. The guy will pick up the tab. That's not really a conversation, but they'll be paying for the Ubers to and from the date. One thing she's found is that people who are trying to meet someone will often skimp elsewhere instead of limiting what they spend to find love. If they think they can't afford it, they'll cut out other things. They'll pack their lunches so that they can afford to go out on dates. Lindsay and I also talked about financial compatibility. How closely two people line up when it comes to their feelings about money and spending. Lindsay believes this is something people should talk about more often. We were joking one time recently that we should update our Tinder profiles. I, I'm, I'm married and not on Tinder, but I was trying to see if any of the, the women that I work with that are, you know, would, would they update their Tinder profiles with their credit scores, you know? Um, oh, my God, that's frightening. Right? <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. Or maybe not. How do you make this a more, you know, pertinent conversation? And, you know, when you are splitting the bill, I think it makes it more equitable and, and put your relationship on more even footing from the very beginning. I do think it's interesting to put always an ideal first date on, on a profile because if somebody's ideal first date is a, is a really nice walk by the sunset, that's different than like a beautiful dinner at a fancy restaurant. I mean, you do get a sense of priorities in that as well. Right. And I think that you mentioned, Somebody mentioned on your podcast about going on a 23-minute date, the shortest date of all time. Was that Oh, yeah, you? that was my shortest date. <laughs> that was your shortest oh, yeah. date? It was so short. <laughs> but when you're doing something free, then you don't even have to worry about getting out of it if it's bad, right? Like, if you're just taking a walk, then you can, like, exit, you know. You just, like, retreat into the Smithsonian Museum and no one knows you were ever there. <laughs> I ask Lindsay what she'd tell someone who doesn't just have dating fatigue, but financial dating fatigue. They're tired of investing in a practice that hasn't paid off. She's quick to say that, listen, for a lot of people, having a partner and the right partner is important. And if something is important, isn't it worth the expense? That might mean budgeting for martinis and Ubers, but it could also mean paying for OkCupid's premium service or a dating coach or joining some single softball league. Lindsay says for some people, the issue with the expense is actually just pride. It's an emotional thing in that people don't like to admit needing help for dating because it makes you feel, I don't know, like you're not good enough or like nobody wants you. And that's a terrible thing. So I think that there's that kind of constant feeling that we all have that we put up this facade of who we are, that we're like calm and we're cool and collected. And when you do things like you pay to have a premium profile on OkCupid, maybe you're admitting that, like, actually, I, ne I need some help. She told me about a 20-something colleague who felt awkward about getting on Tinder Plus, a paid service, because she thought it might make her seem desperate. You know, not to make this all about gender, but the working for it, it seems like women are more easily branded as, like, pathetic. And, you know, if they're straight women, like, husband desperate and... Um, and that showing your work, like the idea that a woman hires a matchmaker, well, what's wrong with her? Um, yeah. I don't know that men get the same judgment on that level. No, I mean, they get to be called bachelors versus women being called old maids. I mean, it comes down to like you know, language. After talking to Lindsay, I thought about how we're supposed to judge the investment we're making in our dating lives. How do we know if we're spending enough or too much? 
I wanted to talk to someone who's really wrestled with these questions. That's how I found Shannon Shelton Miller. Shannon is a writer and communications professional who lives in Ohio. It's the early 2000s. She's in her 20s. Shannon is working as a sports writer, first at the Orlando Sentinel and then at the Detroit Free Press. She's eager to meet someone. She's always believed in love. She wants a partner to share her life with. The irony was that I was working as a sports writer, uh, covering a lot of college football, college basketball, high school sports, NASCAR, all that. And I was surrounded by men all over the place. And everyone just thought, okay, well, you're a woman who loves sports. You should just have your pick. And even men would say, oh, men should, other guys should love you. Everyone wants a woman like you. But that's not Shannon's experience. She has trouble finding lasting relationships. I would meet people, I would get asked out, um, but then things wouldn't go anywhere or maybe they thought I was too busy to go out with them because, hey, I had to work and work happened to be 9 p.m. on a Tuesday because that's when a basketball game took place. I tried everything, too. I tried speed dating because that was on, wasn't that on Sex in the City? I thought that was pretty cool. Or I did online dating. So I, I did most of the things, too, that a lot of people were saying you should go and try. She gets super creative When traveling for work, she buys a membership to those swanky travel lounges in airports. She'd read that they were good places to meet people. She also stays in nicer hotels. She figures they'll present better odds than the Red Roof Inn. Can you discuss the level of frustration that you were feeling at the time? Like, how hopeless were you or hopeful were you? You're getting the wedding invitations from your friends. And then, you know, eventually some people are starting to talk about kids. I'm a stats geek, and you read the stats about the average age of marriage is 26. And even though it's going up, it was still 27, 28 or whatever. You start to just think, oh boy, um, hmm, if this is supposed to be the easiest time to date when everybody is single and everyone's out here and all of that, and I'm still struggling, what's going to happen when it supposedly gets quote-unquote worse? I'm a African-American woman, and especially at that time, or maybe I just noticed it, it seemed like every other news broadcast or something was about single Black women can't find anybody. And that, for me, added another layer to it. As Shannon reaches 30, she's ready for a new approach. She's living in Detroit at this point. And after a bunch of research and reflection, she decides to hire a professional matchmaker. She's skeptical at first that this will yield anything. But after test driving a couple of different services, she finds one in neighboring Ohio called Dating Directions that she likes. So she signs up. There were two women who worked as a team, Shannon says. She pays this matchmaking service $3,000 to find her six dates. The potential matches might be other clients of the service, or they could be people the matchmaker recruits at, like, a singles event. I just said, I'm going to take a chance, because, again, why not? What do I have to lose? Well, money. But still, I said, well, you know, it's money. <laughs> I, I know that sounds silly to say, but I'm, I'm still looking for that person, and things have not really happened, so maybe this could be my shot. Three grand is a lot of money for Shannon, though. At this point, she's making about $50,000 a year, and she's in a struggling industry but seeing constant job cuts. Plus, she's got student loans, car payments, and a mortgage. But Shannon is already thinking that she might be ready to leave journalism. 
and maybe even move to a new city. This $3,000 she's spending on the matchmaker, it feels like a down payment on a reinvention. So I'm open to all of these big changes happening right now. I'm going for broke, I guess. That's how I looked at it, because nothing is really stable at this point anymore. She puts most of the matchmaker's fee on her credit card. The rest of the fee is covered by her parents, who realize that she's going to do this no matter what. So it's their Christmas present. She tells the matchmaking service what she's looking for in a relationship and the kind of men she wants to meet. Basic dating profile stuff. Do you remember what you told them you wanted? Well, I just said a smart, interesting person who's looking to, who's looking for a commitment and who wants to have a family. The matchmaker soon connects Shannon with three guys. They're all in Ohio. But Shannon is there for work pretty often, so that's fine. The matchmaker arranges three dates. They work to plan the date, so they would tell you, okay, you're going to meet at 6.30 p.m. at P.F. Chang's with Bill or whatever. And so you're thinking, wow, okay, this is exciting. I have something to look forward to. This is a date. And I really wasn't even nervous about it being a completely blind date with people. Like, I saw no pictures. I didn't see any. I saw nothing. Shannon has a good time. All three guys are great. One of them she sees a few more times. But then he disappears. $3,000 you know that you have six dates, you get to date three and it hasn't worked out, are you like, shit? Like, it, it makes it makes the need to really enjoy a date. I mean, it's high stakes at that point. For some reason, I didn't feel that, maybe because the first three, even though they didn't work, they were probably better quality than the ones I had met on my own. I felt kind of positive even going into the last three that this is going to be all right. I don't know how or why, but I think it's going to be okay. We'll be right back after a short break. So Shannon's first three dates go nowhere. The matchmaker gives her a second batch of guys. All of them are also in Ohio. One is a professor. Another is in finance. A third just isn't a good match, she says. The professor seems the most promising. Their first date is at an Indian restaurant. I think what I really appreciated about him was that, you know, he was genuine, he was serious, and that he was looking for commitment, too. We, he had said the same thing about dating, just I think we both kind of were quirky types that just, you know, didn't necessarily do all that well in the whole sink or swim, uh, you know, singles pool and everything, and we're just looking for, like, one nice person to just kind of settle down with and, have you know, live in domestic bliss and all of that. He comes to visit her in Michigan. They trade more visits. Then, one holiday weekend, he's busy with his dad. They both realize they kind of miss each other. And we start calling every day, and we're texting and making more plans. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe, maybe there's something here. Maybe this is, this is doing, maybe this is going pretty well. And I was kind of, I didn't know what to do with that, because I hadn't gotten to that point before with very many people, and I didn't really know how to, I was kind of shocked. This just seemed very steady and consistent and a fondness was growing. And it it wasn't like crazy wild sparks or anything, but it was a uh, fondness like, this feels right. This feels good. After a few months, things get more serious. 
he was saying he told his dad about his girlfriend. I'm like, oh, you have a girlfriend? <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's you. And I'm like, well, you didn't tell me that. <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh, okay. Like, are you, are you my girlfriend? I'm like, do you want me to be? <laughs> and I felt like I was 12 or whatever, 14 or something. But what, you were living in two different places still at this point? Oh, we were. Yeah, we were still. So it was long distance. We were still living in two different places. But we really, we were seeing each other every two weeks at that point. This guy, by the way, had also been a paying client of the matchmaking service. So he'd been looking for someone, too. They maintained this long distance relationship for 12 months. Then, exactly a year after their first date, he proposes. Shannon finds a job in Ohio and relocates. It's a win for both of them, and for the matchmaker, who doesn't disappear, by the way. Shannon says that matchmaker continues to provide very helpful advice as the long-distance relationship progresses. I welcomed that because I didn't feel that just a general hands-off approach was working very well. The wedding is at a church in downtown Detroit, the reception at the Detroit Tigers baseball stadium. They honeymoon in Hawaii. They start building a life together. They have two boys. I wanted to know, how did the people in her life react to all of this resulting from spending $3,000 on a matchmaker? I noticed that when one longtime single person in my life meets someone, then everybody's like, well, maybe we should try that what they did. Did you find that your single friends were like, maybe we should hire a matchmaker? Yes. A lot of people ask me that or they said, oh, this worked. I've never heard anyone who did this before and had it work, I want to try this. I'd probably say at least five people ask me for the names of the matchmakers. I asked Shannon whether people were judgmental about her decision to pay for professional help. So I didn't tell them until after things worked out. Nobody knew what I was doing. I was kind of undercover about all of this. And then it was like kind of their eyes opened like, oh, wow, okay. Um, And it seemed like they were instant converts. Like, you actually went out and decided to take matters into your own hands, so to speak, and it worked out for you, and maybe I need to do that myself. The cost of hiring a matchmaker didn't actually seem astronomical, at least not with this outcome. And even after they heard how much it cost, a lot of them said, well, you know what, that's how much I spent on a vacation (laughs) or whatever, so so what? Shannon and her husband remained together for about nine years total, but their marriage actually ended in divorce. They're now co-parenting their sons, she says, and doing the best they can. What I've realized now is that the dating part and the uh, getting together might be the easy part. And also, sometimes you don't see certain things while you're dating that things do start to happen when you're married or when kids start to enter the picture. And those are things that nobody can prepare for, that not even the best matchmaker. I think the I still to this day think the matchmakers made an excellent match based on the information they had. And, you know, there's no regrets about that. In the end, though, Shannon does think her experience with the matchmaker worked out. I think it's all part of the journey. And I learned a lot about relationships. I've learned a lot about dating and also too, just that sometimes you don't even really know what's best for you, maybe until you have relationships and you can see what works and what doesn't work. As a single mom, Shannon has a new perspective on dating now and new priorities. 
you know, before I think there was such a focus on a goal, like, okay, we're going to get married and have children and build a life and grow old together. And that's great. And now it's like, yeah, I still would like to get remarried. I still would like to build a, a later life now, but maybe it's more of enjoying the journey and um, looking for that type of person who wants to do that. So I'm still definitely open to dating. I was also curious, would she spend money again on trying to meet someone? Would she hire another matchmaker? Shannon tells me that she's tried some dating apps, but she doesn't think she'll hire a matchmaker, at least not right now. She can't justify the expense, she says. I wondered what advice she might give to others who might be considering it. First, she says people should know what they're signing up to get. She knows people who've been scammed by matchmakers who took their money and never set up dates, or at least not in a reasonable time frame. Second, Shannon recommends asking pointed questions about where a service will find potential matches and how exactly they go about doing it. Ask if there are money-back guarantees at any point. Also, make sure they're not trying to get you to sign a contract too fast. They should give you some time to think about it. If you need time to think about it, they should give you that. For Shannon, the idea that one should not pay to find love or treat it like a serious investment makes no sense. There's this idea that we're not supposed to put any, we're supposed to put effort into everything else, but not love, not relationships. That just should happen naturally. I'm investing in something I feel is important. It was so great talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing the story. Sure. Thanks for having me. And wow, I, I shared a lot. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> So, my thought on dating and money is this. I do think it's possible to meet someone without spending much money. Also, cheap dates do exist, especially if you can communicate those expectations with someone early on. But if you can and want to spend money on dating, whether it be to hire outside help or sign up for a membership to a club or maybe spend the money on a night out at a cooler bar, that's perfectly okay. Shannon decided to hire a matchmaker because that investment felt right. She didn't feel shame about it. That's really what I learned from her story. And from hearing about the young woman who didn't want anyone to know that she was on Tinder Plus. There is nothing embarrassing or desperate looking about investing in your dating life, no matter how you do it. discussion about money is very relevant to Aaron's story. When Aaron signed up for OkCupid again, and I started swiping on her behalf, we felt really limited. Because with OkCupid's free service, we couldn't see everyone who swiped right on her. Very quickly, I upgraded her to the $19.95 a month premium account so we could see everyone who liked her. And of course, I immediately expensed that to the Boston Globe. So thank you, Globe. You'll hear more about Aaron's next steps on future episodes, but for this one, we're doing something a little bit different. We arranged for Aaron to go on this other podcast called The Science of Happiness, which explores research-tested strategies for a happier life. Guests on the show are asked to do happiness practices, and then they go on to talk about it. Aaron chose an exercise where she had to write a compassionate letter to herself. It actually turned out to be a really good time for this, because shortly after we last checked in with Erin, she lost her job. She'd been working as a senior proposal coordinator for a sustainability company. The job never really felt like the right match, but still, losing it was pretty upsetting. So when she started doing this exercise, this letter to herself, it was all about that. Here's how she explained it in her interview with the host of The Science of Happiness, 
Dacher Keltner. Aaron, would you mind reading a few excerpts from what you wrote? I said, life is hard, but I've become very resilient. I've had many failures in love and work, and I kept moving forward regardless, not only because I needed to survive, but because I wanted to get a lot out of life other than just a mundane existence. I worked too hard on trying to figure it all out, that I refused to go back to a type of work that's a type of work that sucks. <laughs> when I first sat down and I started to write about like, the process, I was feeling kind of bummed out because it was writing down all the reasons why it, why I took the job and sort of why it failed. And then that's when I stopped myself and said, I know what happened already. I don't need to keep telling this story over and over again. Now, why don't I be compassionate? And so I wrote a line that says, your talents to showcase. I just started writing positive attributes about myself. Erin says in her interview that the whole letter writing exercise did take some weight off of her shoulders. I felt like I was saying, hey, you're going through a hard time, but it's, it's gonna get better. And these are the reasons why. It's easy to get lost in all the sort of negativity that we heap on ourselves and then maybe the negativity that's coming at us from terrible bosses. But mostly from ourselves. I feel like it it helps to make a switch in our brain. Um, Maybe that's just me imagining a switch happening. But it's just a nice way to retool thoughts. Just sit down with your thoughts and make it positive and helps you move forward and get out of your own way. Erin is right. She is resilient. And she's making an investment in all of the important parts of her life. I mean, in terms of her love life, she's on this show, which, believe me, is an investment all on its own. And the work continues. Next time on Love Letters. You can hear more of Erin's interview on the April 11th episode of the Science of Happiness podcast, which is available wherever you listen. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. The podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Amy Padula. Audio mixing, sound design, and mastering by Ned Porter. Music by APM. Our executive producers are Scott Hellman and Janice Page. Special thanks to Linda Henry and Brian McGrory. We want to hear your stories of dating and meeting people and not meeting people. Email us at loveletters at boston.com or tweet at us using the hashtag loveletterspodcast. On the next episode, what does the Love Letters podcast have to do with the show Serial? There is a connection, I swear. So get yourself ready for this one. Be sure to subscribe to Love Letters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, or wherever you listen. And if you like the show, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or online at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. And remember, money can't buy you love, but it can get you Tinder Plus.